be the only way to God. Mm, so, right. with your permission, I'm just going to pray for you, if Please, that's right. thank you. Lord, I just want to thank you that you have brought somebody half the way, halfway around the world uh, to be with us this morning. And, Lord, I just pray as Steph speaks, um, the words that you want her to say mm. will just come and touch those who need to hear it. And um, that, in hearing it, we can take a decision to act. Mm. I just pray you speak through her clearly this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Richard. Thank you. Well, six years ago, about this time of the year, I was on a field school for my law degree in Nepal. And we'd just been visiting a Buddhist monastery um, full of Tibetan monks. We'd been inside the temple listening to the chanting, shoes off in silence. And then my class spilled out into the courtyard outside um, and onto this wall that looked out um, onto the lake, the Fewetal, which is a beautiful lake in Pokhara, which is the second largest city in Nepal. And conversation rather naturally turned to the things which we'd seen inside this temple and the things which we'd seen in the other cities that we'd been to, the other places we'd been to in Nepal. I don't know if you've been to Nepal, but it's a very spiritual place. It's a very religious place. Walking through the streets of Kathmandu can be quite an overwhelming experience because in the walls everywhere there are shrines, there are religious images and iconography everywhere, hanging from windows and street corners. There's even, one in one place I was, there was processions that just kind of were walking along the street and then this procession walked past us with masked men and boys carrying slaughtered animals that were beheaded to a local deity and that was just half the course for your Sunday morning. And so outside the courtyard in the hills above Lake Ferwa in Pokhara, it was natural for the conversation to turn to these things, to discuss this impulse which seems to traverse all boundaries of culture to reach for the transcendent. My classmate Devika, who is a nominal Hindu, commented on how beautiful this religious diversity is and how really they're just all different expressions of the same encounter with God, the divine, the real. Devika's comment reflects a view of the world that is pretty pervasive in our society today. That all religions are just different pathways to the same divine being, the same transcendent. Transcendent just mean, meaning something that is other or beyond the material human reality. The variations in expression of that encounter is just down to things like culture and historical um, coincidence, really. So, a person raised in Bhaktapa, Nepal, engages with the transcendent through Hinduism. But you, in England, engage with the transcendent through Christianity, because that's the historical moment that you happen to be in. This um, view 
it's undoubtedly an attractive solution to a problem that we face. And the problem is a, prolifer a proliferation of very different views all jammed up next to one another. So your neighbours are just as likely to be Christian as they are to be Baha'i, Hindu, Jewish, Yogi, New Age. And we're not coping with the differences very well. We're finding it increasingly difficult to speak to one another across those differences. We're finding it increasingly difficult to disagree well. So, the solution is, well, we're all right. Everyone's right in their own way. It's very popular to affirm that all religious worldviews are right. And the corollary of that is that it's also very unpopular to say that one worldview is right and the others are wrong. Such a view is intolerant and dangerous to our common life together. And I don't know if you've been watching the news, but I think we've been seeing this play out in the, the aftermath of the death of John Allen Chow, that 26-year-old American missionary who was killed by the North Sentinelese tribesmen who he had been trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, regardless of what you think about his approach, it's interesting to watch the media reaction. And it's been to slam him. Aside from critiques of kind of um, insensitivity to like, disease possibilities that he might have brought into this isolated community, that aside, they slammed him for the perceived arrogance of his faith. It's arrogant for you to think that your faith is a universal truth that has a truth claim on all peoples, everywhere. And it's culturally insensitive for you to impose this foreign religion on these people. Worse than that, it's dangerous. And underlying this reaction in the media is this objection that we're dealing with today. How can you say that Jesus is the only way to God? It's a really important question with potent emotional appeal. In thinking through this question, I'm not going to answer it comprehensively, but I'm going to give you two handholds. And I'm going to give you those handholds by asking two questions. The first is to ask whether pluralism actually works. And the second is to ask whether it's possible to know who God is. So firstly, does pluralism work? Now, the impulse behind saying that all religions are just different paths to the one same truth is one that we can all relate to. I think maybe you're like me. You feel the relational strain when you're disagreeing with someone, particularly on matters of, say, politics or religion. And so we shy away from saying that they're wrong, understandably. Now, there's a philosopher um, in, in England called um, philosopher John Hick, and he felt this too. He was a Christian. He was converted in, in university. But he felt this difficulty keenly when he was working for civil rights in Birmingham. And he was working and worshipping alongside people from all different faiths. And these, 
these experiences of working with these people led him to this pluralistic hypothesis, and that was that, well, these people, they adhere to a different faith to me, but really we're just experiencing the same divine reality. Different expressions, but it's the same thing that we're experiencing. It's just shaped through our cultural lens. And a popular illustration of this, you might have heard of it, it's the um, illustration of the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've heard of it, I'll explain if not. Basically, the premise is that there are six men, people, um, standing around an elephant. Each person reaches out to touch what's in front of him, a part of the elephant, but all come to an inaccurate conclusion about what they're holding. So one man takes the elephant's side and he says, it's a wall, true reality is a wall. Another man takes the tusk and he says, true reality is a spear, and so on and so forth, you get the idea. So in the words of John Godfrey Sachs, who wrote a poem about this illustration, Each blindfolded man, disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. So the conclusion of this parable of the blind men and the elephant is that each man grasps a different part of the same truth, but none are seeing it for what it really is. None except, that is, for you, who are standing back and watching all these men holding on different parts of the elephant. You're the only one without a blindfold on, the only one with the true insight into what the elephant is, what reality is. Can you see the irony of this illustration, the irony of pluralism? It's that in reaction against exclusive truth claims, so the person saying, reality is a spear, reality is a wall, You yourself are making an exclusive truth claim, saying that all of them are wrong and reality is an elephant. So it wants, and we have to acknowledge this is a good impulse, it wants to affirm that everyone is right in some way, but in so doing, it says that all world religions are actually fundamentally wrong. It says that all adherents of major world religions who take the central tenets of their beliefs seriously and literally, are wrong. In the words of Gavin de Costa, pluralism has very specific truth claims that are also exclusive truth claims. For example, it is claimed that the real, capital R, cannot be known in itself, and when any religion claims that the real has revealed itself, then such claims are false. Such pluralism can't tolerate alternative claims and is forced to deem them as mythical. The irony about tolerant pluralism is that it is eventually intolerant towards most of the major world religions, Christian or otherwise. Friends, making exclusive truth claims is unavoidable because truth, by its very nature, excludes that which is not true. 
It is so tempting to think that it's respectful of the world's religions to claim that they're not too different from one another. That's what my friend Devika was saying to me outside this Buddhist temple, looking over the lake. They're all about love and caring for the poor. There's this strong common core to all of them, and the differences are just minor, peripheral, and you can flatten them out, really. And, you know, to be fair, there are some similarities that we can observe between these faiths. For example, Christianity agrees with Judaism and Islam that there is one God who is both personal and distinct from the world. God isn't just the sum parts of everything that is. And, you know, Christianity even agrees in some degree with Eastern worldviews in thinking that the problem with human existence lies in the human heart. So can't we just take a high-level view of them all and kind of find the lowest common denominator? Well, the problem with this is that, as Ravi Zacharias says, the similarities um, are peripheral and the differences are fundamental. So it isn't actually very respectful at all because there are real and irresolvable differences between them. Take the person of Jesus, for example. Let's just have a survey of what the different world religions say about who Jesus is. Islam says that Jesus was a prophet, not God, and not the son of God, and that he didn't die on a cross because God wouldn't take on human form, let alone die. That's a disgrace. Judaism says that, okay, Jesus existed, he was a miracle worker, but his power to perform those miracles certainly wasn't from God. His power came from the devil. He certainly died, but he didn't rise again. The disciples stole his body. What about Hinduism? Hinduism says that Jesus was a holy man, in its kind of terminology, a wise teacher, one God among many. The perfect example of the self-realisation to which we should all aspire. Many Hindus see Jesus as a symbol of what humans should aspire to, um, but they don't see him as a truly historical person. Buddhism sees him as a wise teacher, but not divine. Christianity claims that Jesus is God, that he lived, died, rose again, and is Lord of all. You can't square all those together and affirm them all as being true. You see that as soon as you take the claims of any one of these faiths seriously, it's impossible to affirm all of them as right at the same time. To say that one is right is necessarily to say that the others are not. To illustrate the extent of these incompatible differences, aside from the person of Jesus, you could talk about these for a long time, but I'll just give you a few handholds. So in Eastern worldviews, there's typically this sense that God is one um, and that God is the sum total of all that exists and that any perception of diversity or self-personal identity is just an illusion and that we want to try and escape that illusion. 
Christianity, on the other hand, affirms that reality exists, it's not an illusion, and that it matters, and God cares about our physical reality. In fact, he cares about it so much that he took on flesh, human flesh and blood, so that he could restore the physical reality. It also differs from these Eastern worldviews in that Eastern worldviews typically claim that the ultimate destination that we're all headed towards is to be absorbed into this super one consciousness, as it were. Alternatively, the destination is kind of this sense of annihilation. By contrast, Christianity contends that the ultimate destination is an embodied interpersonal community of love with one another and with God. You can't hold all those things to be true at the same time. It's far more respectful and dignifying to take the differences between them seriously. The word tolerance in our society is one which we have pared back almost to not meaning anything at all. Tolerance has come to mean, I can't disagree with you. Whereas the richer, the fuller version of tolerance is, I disagree with you, but I still love you and value and cherish you as a human being. So this first point has been to make the case that pluralism, this idea that um, we should dissolve all differences between worldviews to to kind of deal with the emotional stress that disagreement can cause, pluralism doesn't really work. As Walter Martin says, truth by definition is exclusive. If truth were all inclusive, then nothing would be false. There would be no such thing as truth. So, if we can't affirm all worldviews as true, how do we evaluate each of their claims? This leads us to the second kind of handhold. How do we know who God is, let alone how to get to him, her or it? When it comes to evaluating the competing truth claims of the various world religions or faiths, I don't think that there are any shortcuts. I think that you need to do the work, engage with it yourself, see whether you think it it adds up. But this morning we're going to zero in on the truth claims of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, and see how they measure up. Firstly, at the heart of Christianity, it is true that there is an exclusive truth claim. And it's important to say this, that the exclusive truth claim isn't a development a later development by an institutional church that was trying to preserve its power and dominance, it came from the mouth of Jesus himself. He made this claim about himself. He really did seem to think that if you want to know who God is, you need to know Jesus. This excerpt comes from the account of Jesus' life that his good friend John records for us. Just before Jesus was killed disciples were anxious because Jesus kept talking about how he was going to leave them and they were really unsettled by that and so Jesus says this 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. How can Jesus be the only way to God? Because if you believe Jesus, you're bound to take him at his word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is a huge claim, and it's a claim that God Jesus killed. Let's be clear about that. It was offensive then, and it's offensive today. So firstly, at the heart of the Christian worldview, there is this truth claim that is exclusive. Secondly, at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a truth claim that's verifiable. What do I mean by that? Well, all world religions make truth claims. But most of these truth claims are not the kind that you can actually inquire about objectively. The reason for that is because they've been disclosed to an individual, typically, through some form of private revelation or spiritual encounter. They're not the kind of truth claim that are open to inspection by third parties. So, for example, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, he is, according to the Buddhist tradition, he re- you know, received enlightenment sitting, meditating under the Bodhi tree. No one apart from Siddhartha can verify whether that actually happened or not. You can read the text and see, oh, this like, resonates with me a bit, but you can't actually verify, did he, did he actually re- reach enlightenment? And similarly, Muhammad... Um, received a revelation from the angel, Archangel Gabriel in a cave. Maybe, like no one else can verify that. Similarly, an angel appeared to Joseph Smith and revealed, said to him, look, if you go there, you'll find the golden plates, which had subsequent revelation of how God was engaging with the world. But no one can verify whether he actually did see an angel because no one was there. Contrast, Christianity. The central claims of the Christian faith unfold in public, in full glare of the public historical record. Either Jesus did live, die and rise again, or he didn't. As my friend um, and historian Dr. John Dixon likes to say, 
Christianity puts its head on the chopping block of history and invites anyone to come take a swing. How do you know that Buddhism, for example, is the way to the divine? Well, I don't think you can really know unless you reach enlightenment. By contrast, how do you know that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, the first recourse is to investigate the secular historical record. Interestingly, if you look at this historical record, you'll find that there is secular agreement on some pretty extensive core facts of Jesus' existence. No ancient historian disbelieves that Jesus existed. In fact, most think that he existed, that he was an itinerant preacher, had a reputation for healing, that he rubbed up the Jewish authorities the wrong way, that he announced the incoming of God's kingdom, a kingdom which he was somehow the, the, the one through whom this kingdom would arrive. He preached radical forgiveness and love even of enemies. He had a last supper with his friends with bread and wine, that he was betrayed, arrested, crucified and buried, and that very soon after his death, people started to say that they'd seen him again alive. That's kind of the kind of core kind of historical facts, historical evidences that people generally agree on. So the first step for anyone inquiring into the truth claims of Christianity is to investigate these historical claims of Jesus that he lived, that he died, and whether or not he rose again. Because the Christian faith hinges on whether or not these events took place in history. So, Christianity at its heart has a truth claim that is exclusive, but it's verifiable. And thirdly, the truth claim is relational. It's important to note what destination Jesus claims he is the way to. So, let's say if Jesus were the way in Islam, he would have said, no one comes to paradise and 72 virgins except through me. Or in Buddhism, he would have said, no one comes to non-self-reality and the extinguishment of all desire except through me. Hinduism, no one comes to the absorption into the eternal flame of all consciousness, except through me. I can't stress enough that each world religion claims that it is the way to something very different. You can't say that all religions are just different ways up the same mountain because they're going to different mountains. It's tremendously significant that Jesus claims that he is the only way to the Father. The God revealed to us in the Christian scriptures. It may seem like a simple point, but it has tremendous consequences. What's on offer in Jesus is relationship. The relationship between a good father and a beloved child. 
It's not a trivial turn of phrase that Jesus uses when he says that he is the truth. Not just the way to the truth. He is the truth. That means that truth isn't a set of philosophical premises or a moral code. Truth is a person. A human person who can be known and related to and interacted with. And that's very different to what's on offer in any other worldview. Jesus is exclusive because he doesn't say, I am the way who can tell you how to live according to this moral code in order to get to the Father. He doesn't even say, I am the one who's pointing you to the way. He says, I am the way. Truth isn't a set of principles. It's not a set of morals. And this is helpful to understand because it means that all sorts of worldviews do indeed reflect things that are true. There are glimpses of truth everywhere. You don't have to be a Christian to access them. There are truths about what's good, how's the best way to live with one another in our common life, what obligations we owe to each other. But Christianity, and this is the big difference, claims that the truth, the, un- the ultimate reality that undergirds everything, all that is seen and unseen, is a person who can be known. And that if you want to know that person, you've got to know Jesus. The Christian worldview says that right relationship with the transcendent isn't about doing things to uphold a particular moral code. It's about knowing God. You don't have to think your way or work your way to him. At Christmas, we celebrate that he has entered into our world and taken on the form that we understand best, which is humanity. The answer that Christianity gives to the question, how do we know who God is, is this. Because God has made himself known to us. So at the heart of Christianity, there's a truth claim that is exclusive. It's verifiable, it's relational. But somehow it's also inclusive. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really was raised from the dead, if he really is our creator, then yes, it makes sense that if he's God, you can't get to relationship with him through, for example, Muhammad. If Jesus is God, you get to God through Jesus. According to Christianity, Jesus is the only way to relationship with the Father because he's the only one who claims to be God. And accordingly, the only one with authority to extend the invitation into relationship with him. You can't offer me relationship with the queen. Only the queen can offer me relationship with her. But the most incredible thing about Jesus is that his offer is extended to everyone. Without distinction. 
Regardless of your cultural or religious background, he welcomes you. Regardless of what you have done, he welcomes you. Regardless of whether you're sure of him, he welcomes you. He offers all who come the invitation to restored relationship with the one who made you. Come as you are. You don't need to do anything. And that's very good news because we can't work our way into relationship with God when just not good enough. Every other worldview says that if you perform in this way up to this standard, then you might be approved of. Jesus says, if you are with me, you're all good. And you can be sure of that. How can Jesus be the only way to God? The only way to answer this question is to investigate and encounter the person of Jesus Christ for yourself. Because Jesus embodies a truth claim that is exclusive, but it's also verifiable because it all hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. It's about relationship, not rules. And it's inclusive. Everyone's invited. And if you don't know him for yourself, Jesus extends that invitation to know who he is today. He's imploring you to be reconciled to God, maybe through my words to you today. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to tidy yourself up. You don't have to think the right things or do the right things. You just accept the gift of relationship that he's holding out to you. You don't have to reach out to the transcendent because the transcendent has already reached down to you with the offer of relationship. The question all of us have to deal with is, will we accept it? Why don't I pray? Lord God, we thank you that you are not far off, that you are not distant, but that you came near. And at this time of Advent, Lord, we ask that we would encounter the person of Jesus afresh, wherever we're at in our lives. We ask that in knowing him, we would know that in him is life to the full. Jesus, you say that you are the, the way, the truth, and the life. By your spirit, let us know that for ourselves today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steph. It's great as a Christian to have that reaffirmed, just to have that um, reminder of those key truths. But it's a great message for those who don't have a relationship with God. And uh, maybe that's you this morning. And what we're going to do now is we're going to have um, communion together. So we're going to break bread and we're going to have wine together. The children are going to come back. And and, um, we're going to do that as a a fellowship together. But um, there's an opportunity to um, receive prayer either as part of that or after that. And if you would like someone to pray for you, either about something that Steph has said or one of the pictures that we had this morning, as I said earlier, do please come and speak to me at the front and I'll arrange for that to happen. Um, Are the worship band around? Thanks, Chris. 
Yeah, can I just, just remind me, if you've got children in creche or in kids club, now will be the time to go and fetch them. I think 10.52 and youth have come back. Um, so if you've got younger children, perhaps you just go and fetch them down from upstairs, bring them down. We're just going to stay quiet as the worship band plays and as we get communion set up. Mm.